Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. It's designed to help you take your next step with Jesus. And if you haven't been able to make it to one of our campuses and participate in the time of giving, you could do so online through our website or by texting to give so that you can continue to participate in the mission that God has given us. We hope that God speaks to you through this sermon. joking. I'm not that arrogant. Uh, <laughs> you know, here, here at Cornerstone, we exist to help people take their next step with Jesus. And if you've been to Cornerstone one time or a thousand times, you've probably heard us use that phrase that we exist as an organization to help people take their next step with Jesus. It's why we believe God has placed us in all of these locations throughout the East Bay, why, why we're uh, seen across the world online and why we are in the prisons because we think that God has placed us here to help people take their next step with the Son of God. And because there are so many of us, there are a ton of next steps. Um, for some of us, our next step is to step into a care group and receive healing and recovery. For some of us, it's to step into a, speci a specific spiritual discipline. And for others of us, it's to step into a season of rest. Regardless of where we are in life or in our relationship with Jesus, or maybe you don't even have a relationship with Jesus yet, but regardless of that, we believe that each person, each of us, has a next step that is specific to us as individuals. But within that, there are five like major next steps, like on a macro level that we as an organization have identified and said, we think that every person at some point in their journey with Jesus takes these five steps. And they're the five steps we're going to be covering throughout this series. And they are salvation, baptism, generosity, serving, and becoming a part of a smaller community. And these are in no particular order, except for maybe the first two. So this is where we're going to start today with the topic of salvation. This is what our conversation is going to be about. Now, if this is your first time at church or you're newer to church, I want to ask you to give today a chance. I've been praying for you for the last week or two, and I hope that today is a powerful message that just brings hope and life to you. And in the same breath, I realize that I'm speaking at a church, a Christian church, where many of us have already taken the next step of salvation. And I wanna encourage you with something. Because even though you might think, I've already stepped into this, I've already got my ticket to heaven, I'm saved. Even though that's you, I wanna encourage you to stop and maybe process with me your beliefs about salvation. Maybe even start today by posturing yourself in 
a little bit of a different way by asking the question, what formed and shaped my understanding of being saved by Jesus? You know, for me, I, I grew up in the church. Both of my parents are pastors. I became a pastor, but even still, my understanding of salvation through Jesus is constantly growing and evolving. And when I was six years old, my folks were volunteers at our Baptist church in Phoenix, Arizona. We lived in Phoenix for a short season in our life. And, and while we were there, uh, my dad was in title insurance. He hadn't yet stepped into vocational ministry. He was done with seminary, but hadn't gotten a job in ministry yet. So he was working in title insurance. And when his church asked my mom and my dad to help with a program by training volunteers to walk people through the experience of stepping into a relationship with Jesus Christ, when they asked my parents to be trainers for that, they said, yes, absolutely. And the program was called EE, which is short for Evangelism Explosion. Uh, welcome to Christianity in 1989. But, but what they would do is they would go door to door throughout the neighborhoods that surrounded our church, knock on people's doors and ask them a question. If you were to die tonight, do you believe that you would go to heaven? No, nice to meet you, no context, just, hey, if you die in a few hours, are we thinking heaven or no? Like, talk about scaring the hell out of people. Well, as a six-year-old, an impressionable six-year-old, I watched my folks do this and went, this is my calling in life as well. So I walked around my kindergarten class every day asking kids about their eventual death and eternal destination. And I'll tell you, I led a lot of kindergartners to the Lord that year. And every, every time, every time I come home, I tell my mom, hey, so-and-so accepted Jesus in, into their life. She would go, oh, Stephen, angels are rejoicing in heaven today. That was my childhood. Now, to be fair, uh, my parents did lead a lot of people into a relationship with Jesus through this program, I'm not sure how many of the six-year-old conversion experiences I was a part of actually stuck, but I think for a lot of us, this has been how we've understood salvation. It is an escape from hell, that when we die, we will go to heaven. Sure, it might make us a better person. It might encourage us to live a better life, but the most important thing when it comes to salvation is that it lets us get into heaven. And I will admit that this understanding of salvation developed some pretty bad theology in me when it comes to the topic we are discussing today. Because for a majority of my life, I thought that salvation meant that if I said the sinner's prayer, a prayer that allows me to uh, admit that Jesus Christ is, is Lord of my life and, and that I'm a sinner, and then that I accept Jesus Christ as my personal savior, and, and that next I would have my sins forgiven, and, and, and then I would believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, and then I accepted an invitation to follow him, and if I did all those things, then I got to go to heaven. To me, for a, major, for a majority of my life, this was salvation in its entirety. And while all of this is good and healthy and true, hear me on that, this is all good, like I don't wanna send anyone into an ex existential crisis today. While all of this is good, I believe that this is an extremely narrow understanding of salvation. Because as I've gotten older and processed, the, processed this and spent a lot of time studying the words of Jesus and the 66 books that make up the, the, the Bible, these scriptures, I've realized a few things. 
For one, the phrase, accept Jesus as your personal savior is found nowhere in this book. Actually, you won't even be able to find the, the phrase personal savior in scriptures. In fact, the authors of the Bible seem to talk about salvation more about us as a group of people than it does the individual. Furthermore, while the forgiveness of sins is undoubtedly a part uh, of salvation, Jesus seems to communicate that salvation has much more to it than that. Also, the prayer that many of us prayed in junior high, the, the sinner's prayer, uh, that's also not mentioned anywhere in Scripture on top of that, the altar calls and end of service invitations that many of us have seen or been a part of did not make their way into church until the last 200 years or so. And if you were to ask the apostle Paul while he was still alive, he, he wrote a majority of the New Testament. If you said, hey, Paul, do you believe if you were to die tonight, you'd go to heaven? He would say yes, but he'd also give you a really strange look because Paul believed and wrote that the point of salvation was not just to save you from hell, but to step into, a, into the radical and beautiful life experienced with Jesus in the here and now. A life that is defined by indescribable joy, unexplainable peace, incomprehensible confidence, and unfathomable love. So, so where do we go from here? Well, I think we first have to understand the meaning of salvation. In the Hebrew scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament, the term salvation means rescue. And this is important. Hold on to this word today because we're gonna spend some time focusing here because rescue and salvation are synonymous with one another in the Old Testament. And I really got a good picture for this when I was a, a youth pastor down in Southern California and I took some of my students on a whitewater rafting trip. And as the guide sat and explained what to do when you fall out of the raft, I saw my students begin to panic. Now, I knew they'd be okay. I'd been whitewater rafting a couple times, and I'm like, you'll be fine. You got a life jacket and everything else. Don't worry. But they were stressed out, especially this one kid, Colton, who was our most popular kid, most athletic kid, and he happened to be sitting next to me on the raft when we went down the first class four rapid of the day, which is the biggest rapid that we would go down uh, that afternoon. Well, as we started to go, Colton started to lose his balance and he started to, to fall back a little bit and slip out of the raft. And as he was falling out of the raft, I will never forget the panicked look on his face and what he said to me as he reached his hand. He said, Steve, save me. And it was in that moment how I really understood that salvation and rescue are synonymous with one another. That's what he wanted. He wanted me to rescue him. And as, as I had processed this and thought about how great of a sermon illustration it would be one day, I completely forgot about Colton. So he fell out of the raft. To be honest, I might have pushed him a little because he needed some humility, but, uh, but he went down behind our raft with this super panicked and terrified look on his face, gasping for air the whole time. It was hilarious. But... But, it, but what, what I realized and, and what I began to understand is that rescue and salvation really are synonymous with one another. And this is exactly what the Hebrew people were asking for when they talked about salvation. Rescue, save us, rescue us from sickness, from trouble, from fear. And one of the biggest things that they asked for rescue, for salvation from was their enemies and the, and the violence their enemies were inflicting on them. 
See, throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrew authors write about being rescued from the Egyptians and Assyrians and Babylonians and so on, and they write about this a lot. They wanted God to liberate them from the violence and oppression they were experiencing. There was like this, this theme for the Hebrew people, a consistent question that was asked. When will God save us? When will he rescue us? See, it was way more. Salvation for them was way more than just where will I go when I die? For them, salvation was a very practical issue in their here and now. But after a while, their question began to shift a little bit. It moved from when will God save us to why isn't God saving us? Well, if we fast forward to the New Testament, we see that the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, came up with an answer. They said, the reason God is not saving the people is because of the sins of the people. And because of this conclusion the Pharisees came to, sin became a major concern. The reason God wasn't saving them was because of all the drunks, the prostitutes, the greedy, the gluttonous, and the deceitful among them. So those people became outcasts because it was all their fault. Their sin is the reason God is not saving us. Now, real quick, do you think this line of thinking ever enters into our minds today? That sin disqualifies us or someone else from ever being able to experience the salvation of Jesus Christ? That the reason we aren't saved or that someone else isn't saved is because of a sin we've committed or struggle with or something we've done. Or that maybe someone else is, is outside of God's salvation because of their past mistakes. Like we look at them and then we're like, there's no way they could ever be a follower of Jesus. You know, I think at a certain level, we've all heard of God's grace. But I wonder if at a heart level, we really understand the ramifications of God's compassion and mercy when it comes to salvation. Because yes, we've sinned against our savior. But here's the beautiful thing about the Christian faith. Regardless of the fact that we sinned against our, our savior, our savior still chooses us anyway. And I hope you're convinced of that truth today. But the Pharisees weren't. The Pharisees, for them, they had, they had an answer to the, to the why question. We aren't being saved and it's all because of sin. And even if that were true, even if the reason God wasn't saving the people was because of the sins of the people, look how God uses that line of thought. Matthew, Matthew chapter one, verse 21, when, when an angel of the Lord is talking to Joseph about the, the baby in Mary's womb, the angel says, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because, and check this out, he will save his people from their sins. You see, we, we read this book now and we're like, that's for everyone, everywhere, throughout every point in history, which is true. But think about the, the, societal and, and personal consequences for the Hebrew people when they read this. This is the answer. The rescue plan that they've been waiting for is coming in the form of Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This is it. So you'd think that the Pharisees would read this or understand this or begin to, to, to see that this is happening and go, awesome, we've got it all figured out. We're dialed in, this is going good. But as Jesus grew up, grew up to become a man, the Pharisees would have a major problem with Jesus. 
Because for Jesus, instead of joining the Pharisees in their hatred for supposed sinners, he spent time with them. He hung out with them. Not only did he come to save them, he wanted to be with them. And the Pharisees were like, no, you can't do that. Those are those, are those people. We have our people and we have those people. Those aren't our people. Why are you spending time with them? It's all their fault that we're in the position we're in right now. Why would you spend time with them? See, Pharisees had this very in or out mentality. And unfortunately, I think a lot of modern day Pharisees do this same thing. We meet people and start sizing them up and we make up our own minds about whether or not they could ever be a part of our Christian faith. Like, oh, they acted this way. Oh, they, they believe this about God. They, they understand Jesus differently than I do. There's, there's not a chance that they could ever step into the salvation of Jesus Christ. Like, I know I'm saved, but there's no way that person could ever experience the love of Christ. But here's the deal. The, there's not a chance they love Jesus people are the people that Jesus did and would hang out with. Any group of people who are marginalized or oppressed or not like me or maybe have a different interpretation of scripture, the, the drunks, the sexually promiscuous, the liars, the cheaters, the sinners, this is who Jesus sits and eats with. This is who he chooses to be around. He came to save everyone. And so the Pharisees saw this and were like, nope, he could not be the Messiah. Actually, if anything, Jesus is the anti-Messiah because he's messing up this, this system that we've created. See, they had a problem with Jesus because Jesus cared about saving all people. Blessing and liberation and salvation wasn't just for the Jews who followed the rules and stayed away from sin, but for everyone, everywhere, throughout every point in history, no matter what they've done or where they've been. And so there's this constant tension between the Pharisees and Jesus because Jesus came to bring salvation for everyone and the Pharisees just wanted salvation for them and the people like them. And then we take a look at John chapter 10 where we see a tense interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. If you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, go ahead and open to John chapter 10. It's uh, after, after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, before Acts and Romans in the New Testament. So more toward the back of your Bible if you're flipping there now. John chapter 10. We're gonna start right in verse one. You can follow along in your Bible or I'll have some of the verses up here on the screen with me. Here's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Very truly, I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. Okay, this, is, this might be a little confusing. That's something Jesus does often. He uses a metaphor to explain what he's trying to communicate. In this, in this circumstance, he's using the metaphor of a sheep pen and a gate. Now, something his audience would have understood really well is that, that shepherds, when the sheep would come in from a grueling day of eating and sleeping, it was really tough for sheep back then, from, from a grueling day of eating or sleeping, they, they would walk into the sheep pen, and as they'd walk in, the shepherd would check for wounds and thorns and make sure he would patch them up and, and pull out the thorns and anything that was hurting them, and, and he'd give them water if they were thirsty. And then after every sheep was inside the pen, Jesus would, or the shepherd would lay down across the entrance of the sheep pen and literally become a gate. 
It's not like they had a gate to shut and, and open when, when the sheep went in or out. The shepherd was the gate for the sheep pens. So when Jesus later says, I am the gate, you can get a picture for what he's communicating. And as he goes on, he says, the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. So he's talking about himself. And he talks about how the, the gatekeeper opens the gate and how the sheep listen to his voice, how he calls the sheep by name, how he leads them, how his sheep know him and they know his voice and they follow him, but they'll never follow a stranger. Actually, if anything, they'll run away from a stranger because they don't recognize a stranger's voice. And as Jesus explains this metaphor, the Pharisees that are nearby are like, nope, not getting it. They're super confused. And so Jesus says again in verse seven, very truly, I tell you, pay attention. I am the gate for the sheep. I'm it. I'm the protector. I'm the shepherd. I'm the one who alleviates pain. I give water to those who thirst. I take out the thorns. I patch up the wounds. I heal. I am the gate. And the problem the Pharisees have with Jesus is that when he says sheep, he's talking about everyone. Not just the Hebrew people, but every people. He goes on and says, all who have come before me as are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. They don't trust all you Pharisees, all the people that have come up with these constructs for what faith should look like and what, what religion should be. They haven't listened to those people. And he goes on. I am the gate. It's me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Whoever enters through me will be, and here we get to that salvation thing again, will be saved. Will be saved. But this saving grace of Jesus Christ, this shepherd, he's not restrictive. Look what he says next. They will come in and go out and find pasture. They'll experience freedom, but they still know my voice. They still follow my lead. Unlike other entities or, or people that have tried to control them and dictate life to them, here's, here's what those people do. John 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. The enemy, the, the, the person who's trying to, to set up something different than what I've created comes to pull life out of people. It will destroy you. It will kill you. But here's the deal with Jesus. Here's what he says. My, one of my favorite verses in the Bible I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. See, Jesus is saying, if you enter through me, if you run to me, you will be saved. Because all those other temporary things, everything we run to when we, when we think there's something missing, those are like thieves. And the thief, what does the thief do? It comes to kill and steal and destroy. The thief comes to rip life out of you, but I have come that you may have full life. I'm, I'm here to save you. I'm here to rescue you. You see, when I think about salvation, I think the first step is believing that this is who Jesus is, that he is our shepherd, that we enter through him. He is the way to salvation and we receive his salvation when we believe this to be true about Jesus. But let's not stop there. When we read this metaphor, did Jesus just talk about getting into the pen? No, he talked about what life with the shepherd is like. And, and don't miss this, because if entrance into the sheep pen is all we are concerned about when it comes to Jesus, then we have missed the point of salvation. 
because salvation isn't just getting in, it's staying and experiencing life with Jesus. You know, in 2016, you may have heard I'm a Cubs fan. In 2016, as the Chicago Cubs were headed toward the World Series, they had to play a team from San Francisco in the first round of the playoffs called the San Francisco Giants. I don't know if you've heard of them, but, but uh, the Cubs went up 2-0. They won two games in Wrigley, and then game three was back here at AT&T Park in San Francisco, and I was like, I gotta go. Like, I, I need to be there. The Cubs haven't won a World Series in 108 years. I've gotta be a part of this somehow. And, and so I asked Chris Stockhouse, our executive pastor, if he wanted to go to the game with me, and he said yes. And so, so we bought tickets and drove down to AT&T Park, so excited to go to the game. And we walked in, and, and we found our seats, and I was like the only Cubs fan in the whole area, which was fine with me. I, I enjoyed that probably too much. And, and in the second inning, the Cubs had already jumped out to a lead, and and Madison Bumgarner, the San Francisco Giants pitcher, walked Cubs star Chris Bryant, and I started yelling, Mad Bum is afraid, Mad Bum is afraid. Like I'm trying to like really rattle him, even though I'm out in the bleachers, he can't hear a word that I'm saying, but I'm sure it was working. And people around me were laughing like, oh yeah, he's having a good time. The lady behind me, who was already really upset that an obnoxious, loud Cubs fan was sitting in front of her, taps me on the shoulder and waves her finger in my face and says, you can't say that. Uh, what? So I was confused. Like, I don't understand why she was so mad at me. So I just kind of ignored her and went back to watching the game. And about five minutes later, security showed up and told me that they would be escorting me out of the game. I was, I was like, what do you mean? Why would you escort me out of the game? And they said, offensive language. And I said, what offensive language? I'm a pastor. I never use offensive language. And so they, they didn't answer the question. They just, they just shoveled me outside. And, and Chris Stockhouse, who was, who was, by the way, don't tell someone they're scared in AT&T or Oracle Park, whatever it's called now, because you'll get kicked out. But, but apparently, um, so, so Chris Stockhouse, who was with me, started arguing because he heard everything that I said. And he's like, he didn't do anything wrong. And because he was arguing, they kicked him out too. So you've had two pastors get kicked out of the same baseball game, just so you know. And, uh, and so we, we left after an inning and a half of baseball that we paid $200 a ticket for. And it was something that I really wanted to be a part of. And I can tell you from experience that just getting into the game is not nearly as good as staying and experiencing the event in its fullness. <laughs> you see, when it comes to our salvation, I think too many of us worry about whether or not we are in. And I would argue that we are concerned with the wrong thing because just getting in is nothing like experiencing life and life to the full with Jesus. As John, Arber, John Orberg writes in his book, Eternity is Now in Session, which is a phenomenal read about this topic that we're talking about today. I encourage you to pick it up. But here's what Orberg says. The problem is that we are defining salvation as having our entrance application to heaven accepted rather than receiving life from Jesus from one moment to the next. And I think this is why Jesus spoke about his sheep knowing his voice, following him as he leads them, giving them full life, which when you read the New Testament, the word that's used as a synonym for salvation in the New Testament is the word life. 
But if we're just looking for a one-time salvation experience with Jesus to get us to heaven, we are completely missing the point of salvation. Yes, he rescues us, but what does he rescue us from? I think it would be wise of us to merge the Old Testament understanding and the New Testament understanding of salvation, rescue and life. Someone who is concerned about just getting into heaven might say, hey, I was rescued from death. But someone who understands what receiving life from Christ really means would say, I get to live a rescued life. You see, it's not just about what we're rescued from, but what we're rescued for. You know, think about this with me. If we look at salvation as a destination, if we look at it as look at it as just getting into heaven, then we will be satisfied with just getting into heaven. We'll never want anything more. We'll be satisfied with just getting into heaven. But if we concern ourselves more with getting heaven into us, let me say that again because that's important. If we concern ourselves less with getting into heaven and more with heaven getting into us, this is when we experience the abundant, adventurous, fruitful life of Jesus Christ. And let me explain this a little bit more, this idea of heaven getting into us. See, I think we have to understand that salvation according to Jesus is much more than a transaction. He is not concerned with us getting by with the minimum entrance requirements for heaven. Yeah, it begins with the understanding that Jesus believed, or with believing that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. But it goes way further than that. To live the rescued life means a completely new way of living in harmony with God. Something that is initiated by belief in Jesus and then continues on for all of eternity. I think this is why Ortberg called his book, Eternity is Now in Session. Because when you step into relationship with Jesus Christ, eternity begins right now. It's not something that we get to later. Eternity begins as soon as you step into relationship with Jesus. You see, trusting in Jesus means believing that he was right about everything he said and everything he did. And an individual who is just concerned with getting into heaven will not understand the ramifications of the statement I just made. Because life with Christ means that what he said about generosity, forgiveness, purity, love, these aren't just ways to make it to heaven, but instead the best possible advice from the wisest person who ever walked the planet. In the book I mentioned earlier, Orberg writes about this and talks about how the minimum entrance mentality is so problematic. It's like, it's like achieving elite status in, in an airline's frequent flyer program, program. If you've ever traveled with someone who has elite status in a frequent flyer program, you know that there's some pretty cool things that happen, but you also know that they're never concerned with getting much further beyond the bare minimum. Like asking, how, what's the least I can do to stay in this program is a normal question to ask when it comes to an airline's frequent flyer program. But imagine if on my wedding day, I said to my wife, Amanda, in front of the pastor and in front of our friends and family, hey, babe, what's the bare minimum I have to do to stay in this marriage? <laughs> like, what is the least I can do to stay married to you? I imagine the ceremony would have gone a little bit differently. And I probably would have been trying to get a bouquet of flowers out of my eyeball. But you see, salvation 
as scripture describes it, as we read about it, as Jesus talks about it, it's so much more like a marriage than it is a frequent flyer program. We don't want the benefit of just being into the program. We want the perks of a healthy relationship right now. I think this is why questions like, well, how much should I give to my church? Or how far is too far with my boyfriend or girlfriend? Or how much lying and deceit can I get away with in my job? How much following the stranger's voice instead of Jesus' voice is okay and I can still get into heaven How wrong is it for me to wonder about being married to someone else? How disruptive is it to envy someone else's relationship, their financial gains, their job, or their family? It's like saying, how close can I get to the line in whatever situation or temptation without losing my status in heaven? You see, these are minimum entrance types of questions. And if we just read the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters in the book of Matthew, where Jesus talks about what life in him really looks like, you'll see that when it comes to giving, he didn't just say, oh yeah, give this percentage. He said, give it all and hold on to a jacket. When it comes to purity, he said, if you so much as look at someone else lustfully, it's the same thing as cheating on your spouse. He, He said that murder and hatred are synonymous with one another, and so much more. Like the life of Jesus is so radically different and inverted that the bare minimum entrance mentality causes us to approach salvation like like Jesus is a barista at Starbucks. Hey, how much do I owe you for this latte, Jesus? I mean, I know you did this much for me. How much do you need in return? I know you died on the cross. I know you rose from the dead. I know you created heaven for me. What do I got to do or stop doing to make sure I get all of that? See, when we look at life through this lens, we don't experience the life of Jesus. It's why we end up feeling stagnant in our journey. If you've ever felt stagnant in your faith or in your relationship with the Lord, my guess is that it's, or at least this is true for me, that it's because I started concerning myself more with, am I doing enough to stay in? rather than is Jesus living his life in me and through me? So I think better questions for us to ask ourselves would be questions like, did the cross just happen for me or did it happen in me? Did the resurrection just happen for me or is it happening in me? Was heaven just something that was created for me or is heaven happening in me right now? What kind of lives are we living? Is it an empty life or a full life? You see, salvation, according to Jesus, looks like being merged together with him, not just some place we arrive at. It doesn't just rescue us from hell, but it leads us starting right now and continues all through eternity. It's not something that just happens for us. It's something that happens in us. It's why Jesus doesn't ask for a part of us. He asks for all of us. Live a radically different full life in me as I live in you. You know, in light of this, I said I've struggled with this in the past and and I even have moments still where I go back to this mentality. One thing that I've been doing the last couple weeks is I've been preparing and studying for this sermon is to recite this phrase over and over throughout my day as a reminder of what it means to step into the salvation of Jesus Christ, that the life of Jesus is living itself in me. Maybe this is something you wanna recite throughout your day as well. The life of Jesus is living itself in me. I think this is a more holistic and Christ-like approach to salvation. You know, when I was, when I was five years old, um, I went up to my mom and I said, hey mom, how do I go to heaven? 
And she said, well, you pray this prayer and accept Jesus into your heart. And so I did. I was on her back porch and I prayed the prayer. Well, 15 years later, I was at a middle school camp as a volunteer and I had no business being there because of the life I was living and the person that I was. Drugs, alcohol, deceit, lust, but not too much where I thought I'd lose my ticket to heaven, just enough. And I sat there during the night where the kids were giving their lives to Jesus and I remember seeing in that moment that eternity makes a difference in the life I'm living right now. It's not just something about getting into heaven. It makes a difference in the life I'm living right now. It's not about just getting into heaven, but heaven getting into me. And maybe you've noticed that, that our spiritual life is a journey. And like any journey, there are moments that stand out more than others. They have greater importance. And I've had these moments on my parents' back porch and at that camp in the San Bernardino Mountains. They're important. As, as theologian Karl Barth once said, Making an existential decision is key to becoming a Christian. That moment where you choose whether or not Jesus is going to be Lord of your life is an important moment for every single person, every single, single follower of Jesus. But if we do have that moment and we do decide to give our lives to Jesus, that Jesus will be Lord of our life, and we look at that moment like we're just crossing the finish line and we've made it and we're good, then we have completely missed the point of salvation. Because salvation is so much more than crossing the finish line. It looks like crossing the starting line. That's what it means to step into salvation with Jesus. You cross the starting line, you got a journey ahead of you with peaks and valleys and experiences that are unlike anything else you'll ever experience. Because to follow Jesus is to become more and more like him in how we talk, and how we treat others, and how we spend our time and our money. It is to be conformed to the image of Christ because it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is salvation. This is what we're saved into. Now I wanna close today by talking a little bit more about moments because I think moments are important. And someone who's been following Jesus for a long time will tell you like, yeah, I've had some pretty big moments that stand out more than others in my relationship with Jesus. And maybe today, my hope and prayer leading up to this message has been that some of you would like to have a moment with Jesus today. That you say today, hey, I'm, I'm ready to experience this life and life to the full that's found only in Jesus Christ. That I wanna cross that starting line today. If that's you, I wanna encourage you to come talk to our prayer team right after service. Or talk to me, I'll be up here up front and would love to have a conversation with you. But I'm not gonna ask anyone to raise their hand or stand up because the, the last thing I wanna do, I think those are, those are good things to happen in certain seasons and, and, and places, but the last thing I wanna do today in light of the message we just went through is to create an opportunity for you to feel like you're having a transaction with Jesus. If anything, I just want you to say to someone, hey, I'm crossing the starting line and I wanna know from you what's the best way for me to continue on in this journey as I go through the peaks and valleys. Because I can tell you this much, running this race alone is a lot more difficult than running the race alongside this group of people. But there also might be another group of people here today who are going, you know what, I've kind of gone through life with that finish line mentality that at some point in my life I crossed the finish line and that's all that I did. I figured I was in, so I'm good. I don't need to worry about anything else. Well, if you've had that mentality and today you wanna to have more of that starting line mentality, I wanna encourage you to come talk to some of our prayer team or myself right after service as well.
We would love to have that conversation because there is nothing that I can think of that is more important than what we are talking about today because it changes not only our lives, but the lives of every single person we interact with. And actually next week, if you guys have made a decision to step into a relationship with Jesus, we're doing baptisms right after service in this room. It's gonna be incredible. You don't need to go to a class or anything. So if you wanna make an outward expression of the inward decision you've made to follow Jesus, come next week and be ready to be baptized. And uh, it's gonna be a powerful weekend next weekend. But today, like I said, if you wanna have one of those moments with Jesus and and you wanna talk through that and process through that with one of our prayer teams, we would love to do that. But to close, I wanna do something a little bit different. I wanna ask all of us to stand. So will you stand with me? Um, I I wanna close with a prayer that I wrote for us as a church. This is my prayer that I hope we really live out and experience as we, and, and only pray this if you've really stepped into, if, you've, if you believe the things that you're saying. Because I hope that this is the way that this church and this campus specifically here in Livermore really lives out our faith with Jesus Christ. So with that said, will you please repeat after me? And let's, the last night they sounded like it was a sad thing that they were praying. Can we sound like a little excited about it. Jesus, your salvation is for us. Let's do this, let's repeat after me. Jesus, your salvation is for us. That's what I'm talking about. It is happening within us. Your life is the life we long for. We believe you died and rose. so that we could die and rise right now. The life of Jesus is and always will be living itself in us. Father God, you are such a good God. It is incredible. I can't even begin to express the gratitude and and just... I mean, I don't even know words to say, just to say thank you for for the life that you allow us to live because of your sacrifice that you went through on our behalf, that you conquered death so that we could live, God, but not just so that we could live and and step into into eternity with you somewhere down, down the road, but that we could do that right now. God, that we could experience you and the full life that we have in you as you live in us and through us. God, that is our prayer. We surrender ourselves to you today. Father, that just the same thing that you told your disciples before you died on the cross, that the world may believe. Father, if there's anyone here today who's ready to cross that starting line, I just wanna ask that you give them that additional nudge to come talk to our prayer team because it's so important to step through this journey alongside of others. God, we are grateful for today. Help us to never lose sight of the fact that you saved us, not just from death, but to live the rescued life with you. We adore you. We love you. You are such a good God. Pray this in the matchless, powerful, beautiful, incredible name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.